Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to worship today. If you're part of the online campus, welcome as well. These next few moments are going to be different. I've been in a series the last three weeks called Thrive, Making Ways for Better Days. It's a family marriage series. Talked about how to have a thriving marriage, how to have kids that thrive. Last week I talked about conflict. Today I want to go 35,000 feet up, real high, and I want to talk about family systems and generations and how each generation responds to the Lord differently and where you find yourself in your family system. It may interest you to know that in the Old Testament, actually there's a lot of talk about generations and family systems. There are famous Old Testament characters that you can see how one Old Testament character served the Lord and his son or daughter served the Lord and then the next generation, the next generation, the next generation and where they interacted with the Lord. And the reason why it's really important for us to think about that this morning is that we see the same patterns today from generation to generation to generation. So in order to give us some context, if you have your Bibles, I want you to go to Joshua chapter 24, just one verse, verse 15, Joshua chapter 24, and then if you can, go over to Judges chapter 1 and then Judges chapter 2. And we'll cue those up. So let's go ahead and begin. Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Who said those words? Joshua. Now Joshua was a slave in Egypt, became Moses' apprentice, ended up being a spy in the desert, then became a general, then became a national leader, and then took over when Moses died. And Joshua, at this moment, is an old man, and he knows he doesn't have much left And so he calls the Israelites together for the last time. They're in the promised land, and he says to them, look, we're at a decision point. And he challenges the elders of Israel, all the important families, the family leaders, and he challenges them to say, I'm going away, my time is limited, but I charge you to follow the Lord completely and to finish the work of possessing the promised land. It's like 85% done. He has spent his entire life conquering the promised land. There's just a little bit left. But I'm an old man now. You're going to have to finish it. And the elders stand up and say, yes, this is it. We will do it. We will serve the Lord completely. And we will follow the Lord and finish all of the work that God has called us to do. Except they didn't. Listen to Judges chapter 1, verses 28 through 30. 
When the Israelites grew stronger, they forced the Canaanites to work as slaves. But they never did drive them out completely from the land. The tribe of Ephraim failed to drive out the Canaanites. The tribe of Zebulun failed to drive out the residents. And I've cut these verses short, but it's one tribe after another that failed to drive out the Canaanites. Now, here's what you need to know about the elders. They were good people. They had seen God do incredible things in their lives, and yet they got to a point where they just said, it's too much hard work to drive the rest of the Canaanites out. Let's make peace with them. So they decided that they would make peace with the Canaanites, that they would essentially enslave them and make them pay tribute, taxes. Now, on paper, this was a great plan, right? Because, I mean, there's no more war, um, there's peace in the land, and they're getting tax money, and everything's copacetic. And that's how that generation lived. The problem, of course, is that they kind of winked and nod when it got to the place of they didn't completely inhabit the land like they promised Joshua they would. Third generation, Judges chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. After that generation died, who's that generation? The elders. Another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things that had been done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal, they abandoned the land, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of, they abandoned the Lord, the God of the ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. And they went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them. And they angered the Lord. Do you see it? Does it make sense to you? Are you tracking with me? One generation sees the Lord this way. Another generation sees the Lord another way. And another generation doesn't follow the Lord at all. So what does this have to do with the three chairs? We're going to do show and tell. The first generation is this chair. This represents Joshua. And the key word that describes Joshua's life is commitment. He is fully committed to the Lord. He's all in. He has served the Lord his entire life and he has found the Lord to be true and faithful and he's not going back. But the second chair people are the elders. And remember, they're good men. They're good women. But their lives are summarized by partial obedience. They're all in, sort of. The best word to describe them is compromise. And then, of course, there are the children of the elders from Judges chapter 2. And these are the people who know all the old stories about the parting of the Red Sea and the ten plagues and how God brought them into the land of Canaan and crossing over the Jordan River. And they've heard all of those stories, right? But to them, 
they're so far back, they're like wives' tales. And besides, they've been raised under a second generation that sort of kind of served the Lord. And so the best word to describe them is conflict. Because they're in conflict with God. They have an awareness of God, but they don't know God. So how does all this begin to work out? You see where I'm going with this, right? We're going to start playing. So what are the people like with regard to their relationship with God in chair one? Well, they experience God as a friend. They're all in. In other words, God is first, they're second. They're faithful in their Bible study, their prayer, their tithing, their serving. They're just faithful to God. But here's the key thought. The people in this chair, in this generation, they serve God because they what? They want to. But the second generation, when it comes to their relationship with God, they see serving the Lord as more of a responsibility that they need to fulfill because that's how they were raised. They do many of the same things that the first chair people did. They still go to church, but not with the intensity that the first chair people did. They still tithe if they can afford to tithe. They still serve if they have the time to serve. And so the reality is for this second chair generation, a lot of what they do for the Lord really is because they have to. They see it as a duty, an obligation, a responsibility to fulfill. The third chair people, um, they have an awareness of God. They have attended church until their parents say they don't have to attend church anymore. And they tend to see faith issues not as relationship or responsibility, but they see it as religion. So the first chair people want to, the second chair people have to, and the third chair people don't do. Okay, what shapes chair one people? What influences them the most? Actually, it's this, Scripture and the church. First-generation Christians are shaped mightily by Scripture in the church. I mean, they love the Word of God. They, they have their favorite chair. They have their favorite moment. It's always usually in the morning or some very specific time, and they, they just love it. They wouldn't think about skipping church unless, of course, they were sick. They wouldn't think about not reading their Bible on a regular basis. And their entire life, they see the church as the social and spiritual center of their life. And they see the Word of God as exactly that, the Word of God. The second generation, though, is shaped largely by other Christians. It's not to say that they don't respect the Bible. It's not to say that they don't intend church. But actually, they do it with less intensity. And so, second generation people have a tendency to be influenced by other Christians. Christian music, Christian books. Christian relationships, they do get into the Word of God, but they don't have as much Scripture memorized as their first-generation parents. They just kind of do Bible light. 
Third generation actually is shaped more by culture than anything else. They are the Judges chapter 2 people. The people who are so surrounded by a culture that they're absorbed into it and they just think that things are right and wrong based on what the culture tells them. Okay, so how do, what do chair number one people live by? They live by convictions. You know what convictions are, right? Convictions are deeply held beliefs that more your life. So what are some convictions? Life begins at conception. Love God first and most. These are convictions. They're rock solid in people's lives. Second chair people live by beliefs. Now convictions are deeply held beliefs. But second chair people live by beliefs, things that they know to be right and true, whether they follow them or not. So a conviction is, I don't steal. Stealing is wrong. A belief is, well, of course stealing is wrong, but it was just a candy bar at Walmart and I was hungry. What's the big deal? Third generation lives by opinions. They are no longer moored to truth. It's just what they personally have come up to believe. Now, in the religious world, there's a term for this. It's called syncretism. Syncretism is a fancy name for a stew of values that you make up. I believe a little bit of this, I believe a little bit of that, I believe a little bit of this, I believe a little bit of that, and you just make up your own. Have you ever said to somebody, hey, what you're doing isn't right? And they say, well, that's your opinion. How do first chair people see their jobs or their vocations? They see it as God's calling. They've prayed about their job. They've prayed about their vocation. It doesn't matter whether you're an accountant, whether you're an engineer, whether you're a lawyer, a doctor, a, a home improvement guy, a plumber. It doesn't matter what you do. These people have prayed about it, and they see whatever they're doing in life vocationally as God's call. So when they go to work, they're going as a missionary, seeing who they can influence for the Lord. Notice the subtle switch in chair two. Chair two people now see their vocations as a blessing from the Lord. Oh, I love my job. God has blessed me so much with a great job. Hey, you know, chair one people feel that way too, but you know what? Sometimes you stay at a job because God tells you to stay at a job, and it may not be a great job for you at this moment, but you know that God is working through you, and so your primary focus is, God, what do you want me to do? Chair two people are like, I don't like this job. It doesn't make me feel good anymore. I'm going to get another job. And when they go get another job, God has blessed me. Watch this one. Vocationally, chair three people 
see their jobs as a way to prove their own worth and identity. I have this job, it's who I am. And if I'm successful in my job, then I'm worth something. If I'm not successful in my job, I'm a failure. Why would they feel this way? Because they're no longer moored to God, who is the one who gives you your own identity and worth that is separate than what you do. They have confused being with doing. How to chair number one people see marriage. See, you didn't think I was ever getting to marriage and parenting, did you? Like, I don't know where he's going with this message. We're back to thrive. So how to chair one people see marriage? They see it as an unconditional covenant. They made a vow before God. And until death do us part, they're together. That used to be a positive statement, but culture has turned it around to make it a negative statement. And whenever you hear about people that we're together until one of us dies, it's always a negative. Oh, right. Well, I don't want to be in a marriage that we're just constantly hating each other. No. You know what happens in first chair people? They realize that they're moored together for life, so they better work it out. And it becomes a positive. Hey, I never believed in arranged marriages till I had kids. You know what's fascinating about a lot of arranged marriages? They come in with the expectation that they're going to be very different and they need to get to know each other through a period of years. And they come in with a mutual respect. And they realize they're just going to have to work it out. And they do. How to chair two people see marriage? as a conditional covenant. I mean, or a contract. I want my marriage to work, but I also want to be happy. I mean, I'm going to do my part if he does his part. I'll meet halfway if she comes the other half. But you know, if things don't work out, what can I say? It's just life. Third chair people see marriage as a legal convenience. Well, you know, we, we love each other, but, you know, if, if we get married, we're going to lose our Social Security check. Or if we get married, then we're going to lose some tax benefits. And, I mean, we're married as long as we love each other, but if we're no longer in love with each other, then that's eh, no longer convenient to be that way. Approach to parenting, first chair people. What's the approach to parenting if you're in the first chair? You apply biblical principles to your child rearing. And you are extremely confident that because you are moored in God's word and you're doing things according to the Bible, you just expect that your kids are going to flourish. It doesn't really occur to you that your kids won't flourish. Second chair people, listen to this, they're influenced by biblical principles. They may apply them even inconsistently, but they, they, they are aware of them, 
But they're also mixing in a bunch of other things too. What's the approach of third chair parenting? They choose their own approach. It's this syncretism. They get a little bit from that book and a little bit from that book and a little bit from that book. And they went to a seminar and they heard this cool thing and they just keep drawing from it. And they don't ask the question, what does God's word have to say? What are the principles that God has laid out in his word on how to raise kids? Hey, what's the goal? This is fascinating. Maybe you've fallen asleep in the last five minutes. Wake up. It's time to wake up. You ready for this? The goal of parenting for first chair people is to raise godly kids. Watch this now. The goal of second chair parenting is to raise good Christian kids. You know there's a difference between raising godly kids and good Christian kids. You know what the difference is? God I want my kids to follow you with a whole heart. And whatever you have to do in their lives to get them to that point, I release them to you. If you call my kid to be a missionary 10,000 miles away and I get to see them once every three years, I'm not going to be happy about that. But if they're in the center of your will, we're in. This generation, I mean, they want, they want good Christian kids. But they want them to live 10 minutes away. And they want them to have a great job in which they're successful. And they just want them to have a nice life. Now, here's the problem. Is there anything wrong with that? No. There's not. Except that they may not settle for godly and holy watch this one third chair people they're just interested in raising kind nice kids you've heard me say on many occasions that stop praying the b prayer and stop and start praying the a prayer you know what the a prayer is right god i need a miracle but when we pray and pray and pray and we don't get the A prayer, what do we do? We suddenly change and we go to the B prayer. Well, God, just bless me. I think that there's a lot of parents who have lost the vision for raising godly kids. So they're just settling with, just make my kids nice and kind. And what's wrong with nice and kind? except it's not the vision of change the world through my kids because they are following you. And if they follow you, you can do anything you want with them and they will change the world. Now, biblical examples. Chair one people, they're Abraham and David. Abraham's tagline was a friend of God. David's tagline was a man after God's own heart. Second generation, 
Isaac, and Solomon. David had seven wives. Solomon had a thousand wives and couldn't keep any of them happy. David had wealth. Solomon had, well, you know, the wealth of Solomon proportion. David was not perfect by any means, and he messed up a lot. But he was still a man after God's own heart. By the way, you don't have to be a perfect parent. You don't have to be a perfect person. But you do have to be in the want to category. You know what the Bible says about Solomon? That Solomon married so many foreign women that in his old age they turned his heart away from the Lord and that he only partially serve the Lord. Generation three, Jacob and Rehoboam. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, David, Solomon, Rehoboam. Uh, Jacob was known as the deceiver. He deceived his brother out of his birthright. Rehoboam is less known some of you may be thinking, okay, I heard of the name Rehoboam. Actually, Rehoboam was the one who divided the kingdom between northern and southern, and there was a civil war. He started a civil war because of his own selfishness, arrogance, pride, and materialism. Now, three questions, and I'll be done. The first question is, what chair are you sitting in at this moment? Go with your gut, because your gut is usually right. Just go with your gut. Are you in chair number one, truly, in your heart, all in? I mean, you want to. It's God first, you second. Are you in chair number two? Yeah, you, you know, you love the Lord. You're a good person. But you're... You're marked by compromise and partial obedience. Are you in chair number three? See, you're here today because mom and dad told you you had to come. Or you'll feel guilty for, being, for you know, not coming. And it's no longer about want to or have to. It's that you're counting the days until you're done. And you don't have to come to church anymore. Or you don't have to do certain things anymore. And here's what I believe. I actually believe that most Christians are right here. This is the promised land, but I think that most of the Christian church, so I guess I'm including Emmanuel in that, right? But I mean, I'm talking the big C church. I think most of the Christian church is right here. We, we know people and we may have experienced people in this chair, and we may have even sat in it for a while, but it's so hard to stay there. It takes so much time and effort. It's like clearing the promised land. You know what I mean? It's exhausting. And yet, it's also the most satisfying. How many of you discovered that the most satisfying relationships that you have are also the most time-intensive? Marriage parenting I think most Christians are here 
The second question I want to ask you is, where are your kids and your grandkids? Can you identify where they're at? Which chair? I'm not talking about being heavy judgmental. I'm not talking about bringing down, you know, you're this and you're that. I'm, not, I'm just asking you to make a, a value judgment. Where do you think your kids are? Those of you who have kids in your 20s, 30s, 40s, are, are they in this chair? Are they in this chair? Are they in this chair? Now, the reason why I'm asking you that is because it really, it really changes how you pray, doesn't it? Get a hold of yourself, Mark. But if you're here, how can you ever expect your kids to get here? They're not going to. They need you to be here. That if they get here, there's always a pull to come back here. They need for you to be here because if they eventually are over here, They've got a prayer warrior that will not relent until they come back to here. Does that make sense to you? Are you tracking with me? Okay, third question. How do you move chairs? Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, where we began. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. You do not have to have it all figured out, but it all begins with a commitment. So if you're here today and your life is kind of like you just know in your heart you're here, you can choose to get up and move over here just like that. I'm not saying it won't be costly. I am saying it's a decision. If you're here and you're like, oh no, it's inevitable. There's just no way I can ever move back to chair one or get there for the first time. That's not true. That's a lie of Satan. There's people all the time that are sitting in the third chair. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And boom, you're back over into chair one. Every person, every generation has to make a decision on their own without their parents, without their grandparents. There is a flow. There is a generational issue going on here. But that can be broken at any time. And I can see young people. I can see middle-aged people. I can see older people that are clearly sitting in chair one. Listen, because they've chosen to do that. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have it all figured out. But you can break a trajectory of where you're headed at any time. So I think I'm just going to close by asking you, which chair are you at? Which chair do you want to be? And then in your heart, you're going to have to make that decision of saying, I'm ready to get up and move to another chair. Or... Yeah, I hear what he's saying, but if you're there, tuck, that, tuck this message away because one day you'll need it.
because it's the nature of life to bring you to decision points. And when you're at a decision point somewhere in the future, pull this message out and say, is today my day? Let's bow our heads together. Lord Jesus Christ, speak. I mean, tell us right now through your spirit, which chair are we in? Give us the courage and the clarity to see. And then also give us the confidence to jump into the first chair. Because that's the place of blessing. That's the place of joy. That's the place of fulfillment. Yeah, it can be hard sometimes. But that's the place where you call us to be. It's promised land. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.